Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. So back when I was in school, I took an organic chemistry class, and my professor for that class was named Richard Feynman. And he started on day one by telling us that he was not the Richard Feynman, that his name was spelled differently, and there was another difference. He had no Nobel Prizes to his name. Well, I had never heard of the Richard Feynman, whoever he was. I gathered from a chemistry professor that the Richard Feynman was a physicist and had a Nobel Prize. So I thought, okay, fine, but I never thought about him much since. Until, in the last couple of weeks... Two things happened. One, I finally saw the movie Oppenheimer, and Richard Feynman was portrayed in the film because he worked on developing the atomic bomb with Oppenheimer at Los Alamos. And two, our friend Stephen Dubner, host of Freakonomics Radio, popped up to see if I wanted him to come on the show to discuss his latest Freakonomics series about Richard Feynman. Now, Dubner usually explores the relationship between our ordinary lives and economics, right? Our behavioral psychology around money, you might say. So why has he been doing his podcast lately on a physicist who died more than 35 years ago? The answer, very simply put, is that the Richard Feynman wasn't just a scientist, but also a voraciously curious human being who was very into puzzles and drumming and lots of other things, and also taught sometimes at the Esalen Institute in California, where people explore different kinds of consciousness and humanistic psychology. The bottom line, Dubner is very, very into him. So I thought between Stephen Dubner and the Richard Feynman, how could this not be interesting? So, hi, Stephen. Always good to have you. Welcome back to the non-freakonomics part of WNYC. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. And we even have sound bites of the Richard Feynman, which we'll get to. Assuming most of the listeners know as little as I did about the Richard Feynman, maybe we should start with his basic claim to fame, like what he won the Nobel Prize for. Can you do that? Sure. Um, so first of all, the fact that you, even you, didn't really know much about Feynman at this late day is, was sort of the animating reason for the series. So Feynman, yeah, I guess the the major events of his life in the public sphere were as you mentioned, working on the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos. He was one of the youngest people there, but he proved quite valuable. Um, toward the end of his life, he really made a splash by serving as a kind of hostile participant on a presidential commission exploring the um, Challenger space shuttle disaster. He was, he was the one who wanted to find out what really happened instead of producing a kind of whitewashing pat NASA on the back and say, nice try, fellas, let's get it right next time inquiry, which is where it was headed. And in the middle, yeah, kind of earlier on, he won a Nobel Prize for his work in quantum electrodynamics. So, you know, Feynman... Um, was really, if you know, look, I don't know an awful lot about theoretical physics either. Most of us don't. Um, what Feynman did, though, was approach physics in a way that I think all of us can identify with, which is to say, as a kid growing up in far Rockaway, Queens, you know, kind of on the edge of the earth where ocean meets land and where a lot of things meet each other, he was transfixed by nature in every form, light, sound, um, ocean, water, solids, gases, et cetera, et cetera. And he had a father who was not a scientist, but was a wonderful teacher. His father happened to be a uniform salesman and taught him one of the most important lessons early in his life, which is when you see a person in a uniform, don't assume 
they are extra special or smart. They just mm. happen to be in a position of authority. And so Feynman was a wildly curious and smart and playful and kind of weird um, human who also happened to be um, one of the best physicists who ever lived and so won this Nobel Prize. People who really know physics, and we spoke with a lot of them for this series, say that if the Nobel Committee was in the habit of awarding multiple prizes, which they've only done a handful of times in history, you know, Feynman did work. He could have won three or four or five uh, uh, Nobel Prizes. So he was a remarkable scientist. But what really got me wanting to do a series about him was the fact that, I mean, if you had to boil it down, he had courage. He um, thought for himself. He hated when people would um, pretend to know more than they did about anything. He knew as a scientist how hard it is to prove even a small thing true. And so when people spoke about large things, which of course we hear all the time now in our politics and our mm -hmm. institutions that, you know, back up, um, work hard, learn something small that's true and then take it from there. And so to me, he's a role model and um, he's someone who most of us don't know about or certainly think about much anymore. And I wanted to um, I wanted to bring him back. And in one of your episodes, you just list some of his varied interests, which you say include bubbles, rainbows, ocean waves, brain waves, consciousness, things as small as atoms and as big as the universe, the behavior of ants, and playing the bongos. <laughs> now, Stephen, given that list, yeah. um, I would say I, th I thought of, you know, which one does not belong? <laughs> and <laughs> so does, does the, do the bongos fit in in a certain way with a scientific interest, or is it just a random thing like anybody might be music into music and he was into music? That's a really good question. I would say some of both. I mean, for him, so he lived a life, I would say, of joy or attempting to find joy. And as I mentioned, he was really playful. Now, his life was marked by a lot of sadness and tragedy. I mean, the Manhattan Project, as we all know, especially if people have seen Oppenheimer lately, you know, it was this amazingly complex project coupled by the fact that at the end, when the success was found, all of a sudden, the original intention of all these scientists, many of whom, let's not forget, were refugees from Nazi Germany and elsewhere, many of whom were Jewish, and then Feynman, who was Jewish as well, their whole intention was to build a bomb to, to combat the German bomb effort under Werner Heisenberg. Now, all of a sudden, <laughs> Germany had surrendered, and the bomb gets dropped, two of them, on Japan. Right. This left Feynman and many others in a kind of existential funk for a variety of reasons, the biggest one really being that he believed that once the nuclear bomb existed, once nuclear weapons existed, that humankind was done. He looked at how humans behaved, how ignorant we can be, how stubborn we can be, how we fight. And he thought, there's no way we're not going to obliterate each other. Plus which, he was married young. His childhood or high school sweetheart, they were very, 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 very close. They were very much in love. She helped him grow a lot in ways outside of science. And she got tuberculosis and died while he was at Los Alamos. She was in a, a sanatorium um, near there that Robert Oppenheimer had wow. actually found for her to, to move out there for. So he thought life was over. And he spent a few years after the war up at Cornell, not very happily. Then he moved to California. And in California, he kind of he had a new life. He, he kind of started over, hit reset. California agreed with him. And from then on... He decided, I'm going to live a life of pursuing joy, pursuing science, which for him was joy, and being deeply, deeply true to himself. And, and that's what he did. And that's why I really feel he was a model. 
and and we'll get to the California portion of his life uh, in a minute. And listeners, if you're just joining us, my guest may be recognized the voice, Stephen Dubner, host of Freakonomics Radio. Uh, he just finished a three-part series on the late physicist, Nobel Prize winner Richard Feynman. And in, in the movie Oppenheimer, <laughs> the Feynman character, played by Jack Quaid, has a pretty minor role, though we do actually see him playing the bongos. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> including, I think, very poignantly, right after the successful atomic bomb test, there on screen is this guy playing the drums. And it was kind of eerie. And I didn't even register it, really, as Feynman. It just kind of came and went on the screen until I started listening to your series. So tell us more about what Richard Feynman's uh, role at Los Alamos was. Okay, so Feynman was, let's see, I'll back up a little bit. Uh, grew up far Rockaway, Queens, as I mentioned. Um, very brilliant, very experimental. He was always blowing up things and, you know, fixing things. When he was a kid, he had a service fixing radios for people in the neighborhood. Um, went to college at, uh, where the heck did he go? <laughs> this series is a couple weeks out of my mind. Right? Did <laughs> he go remember. to MIT? I guess he went to MIT undergrad. Thought about staying there for, for PhD, but then he went to physics instead. Being Jewish certainly had a something to say with where he went. He wanted to go to Columbia, wanted to stay in New York City, but the Jewish quote at Columbia was too strong for him. So MIT, Princeton. Then at Princeton, everywhere he went, he established himself as not just one of the smartest people around, but smart in a different way, smart in a clever way, smart in a way that he didn't really give a darn what other people thought of the way that he approached a problem. He loved, as you said, solving problems, solving puzzles, and so on. So at Princeton, even as a grad student, he got an, a, a reputation for being not just clever and playful, et cetera, but very, very brilliant and a great computer. He was fantastic at computational tasks of all kinds. And in the days before computer computers, this was very valuable. So he was brought out to Los Alamos. To describe what he did on the bomb, um, it's easy to overstate it. What I will say is that in the beginning, when he was this young person that was recruited to come out as a, a bright mind, in the beginning, what he would do is often, I think this may have been presented in Oppenheimer a bit, I can't recall. He was often the, the, the guy who would sit in the back of the room when these senior physicists from all over the world, this dream team, were coming up with ideas for how to move this project forward. And Feynman from the back of the room would be this guy who would say, ah, that's a lousy idea. It'll never work. And he sound, you know, he could sound like a crank and he could be arrogant. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, the elder statesmen, including Oppenheimer and Hans Bethe and Enrico Fermi, et cetera, realized that this guy actually knew what he was talking about. And so they began to loop him in more and more. And he essentially headed up the computational, a big part of the computational product, uh, project, which went into determining, look, I'm not going to pretend to be a, a nuclear physicist or to know anything about actually building an atomic bomb. But he, he turned out to be a key part of the yeah. team in that regard. Listener writes, please don't forget Feynman's sense of humor and how he kept his students in stitches. Another one on the bongos writes, music is math. It fits perfectly <laughs> with science, especially physics. So here's a clip from your podcast of Richard Feynman in real life, not an actor playing him, basically praising Oppenheimer for the way he ran things at Los Alamos. It was very democratic. It wasn't the kind of hierarchy of uh, where you had to know your place. Your point was everybody's place was to say anything they wanted to anybody else. I never knew who I was talking to. I would only worry about the physics. If the idea looked lousy, I said it looked lousy. If it looked good, I said it looked good. <laughs> Simple proposition. I've always lived that way. It's nice. It's pleasant. If you can do it, I'm lucky. I'm lucky in my life that I can do that. 
So can you talk about that clip, Stephen? I mean, whatever we think of the invention of the atomic bomb or how the U.S. used it, democratic versus undemocratic is probably not the scale we measure scientific research on. At least I didn't think so. Oh, that's interesting. You don't think so. I mean, I do. I do. I do think that science is meant to be very democratic in that, you know, the best ideas win. But but I will say this. That is not a very popular notion anymore. And I will say, um, you know, there are downsides. So I've spent a lot of time in not in physics seminars, but in economic seminars. You know, my friend Steve Levitt is an economist at the University of Chicago. He's my co-author on the Freakonomics books. And so I spent a lot of time over the first five or 10 years of working with Levitt in these seminars where... um, if you would come in, especially as a young presenting, maybe a newly minted PhD talking about your job market paper, you would give this paper and then be torn to shreds by the elders in that room who did not care about reputation, didn't care about how cute something was. All they wanted to know is, did it work? And in that regard, Feynman very much fit in. He, um, you know, I, I think as he got uh, older and more senior and more acclaimed, he was very egalitarian. He loved teaching, but he also, you know, he also liked to be, he liked to win. He liked to win an argument. So there's, um, there's a piece in our series with, I believe it's Stephen Wolfram, the scientist, computational scientist, talking about how he, when he was a student at Caltech, where Feynman taught for 30 some years, they would have these workshops and bring in visiting scholars. And he said that Feynman would come up to him and say, hey, Wolfram, let's you and I compete to see who can find the fatal flaw in this person's presentation first. And it could be cruel, okay? But that, according to Feynman, and according to a lot of scientists, including a lot of physicists and economists, if you want to call them scientists, Feynman would not. Feynman had very little patience for the social sciences, I have to say. He thought Mm -hmm. it was not empirical at all. He might have liked economics a little bit more than psychology and so on. But he really believed that um, an idea was only as good as th- the proof that would follow it. And so his, his main argument throughout his life was it's really hard to truly know when X causes Y or if something else is causing Y or if X causes something else. And so people who... His big thing was he said the world, and this is something his father taught him, he said the world is full of people who know the name of something. They know how to talk about it. And they fool themselves into thinking they actually understand the thing. Mm. And he said, and that is a fatal mistake. And it's a, it's a fatal lack of critical thinking. And again, this goes back to why I wanted to make this series. I feel, Brian, that we are living in an era where critical thinking doesn't really have prominence right now. I think we all fall prey to the fast and the noisy and the quippy and the angry. And I wish there were more people like Feynman who could serve as, let's call it, public intellectuals. Now, Feynman would hate Mm -hmm. to be called that because Mm -hmm. he didn't think of himself as an intellectual. He didn't really like engaging with the public. But I think this goes back to what I mentioned earlier, courage. to work really hard to understand what's true and what's not true and then have the courage to talk about that is valuable. So to that point, we'll play one more soundbite from your series. We might call this moment, Mr. Feynman goes to the hardware store. (laughs) He buys, this is after the Challenger disaster, the explosion in the 80s of uh, one of the space shuttles that had what was supposed to be the first teacher in space, Krista McAuliffe on board, horrible tragedy. And he's on the commission to figure out what really happened. 
and he buys a couple of tools to demonstrate in a very dry way how these parts called O-rings probably did not work as they were supposed to because it was too cold that day for the material they were made of, and maybe they shouldn't have launched the thing in that cold weather and known that. Uh, but listen to this clip, not just for the content, but for Feynman's tone of voice. Oh, I took the stuff that I got out of your seal, and I put it in ice water. And I discovered that when you put some pressure on it for a while and then undo it, it maintains, it doesn't stretch back, it stays the same dimension. In other words, for a few seconds at least, and more seconds than that, there's no resilience in this particular material when it's at a temperature of 32 degrees. I believe that has some significance for our problem. You comment in the podcast on the tone of that moment and those particular words at the end, I believe this has some significance for our problem. Why was that? You know, um, I think my favorite thing about Feynman is that, A, he understood how hard it is to truly know anything. You hear how he wasn't triumphant in his proclamation there. He didn't say, you knew the O-rings could be faulty. You did this and you did that. I believe this has some significance for our problem. He's really good at leading people to understand the truth for themselves. But more, even more than that, when there was uncertainty, he was not scared of uncertainty. He was really happy to live in that place. Like, he, he came into this world like we all do, knowing almost nothing, having a relatively short time, trying to figure out as much as we can. But the natural world is overwhelmingly complex and interesting and fascinating. And so he felt that we would always be in a state of uncertainty about the vast majority of things. And it's a crime to pretend that that's not the case. And so when you can learn a small thing and say it to be true, do that with courage and otherwise have a little humility and put your nose to the grindstone and try yeah. to found out, find out as much as and, you can. And he issued this stinging dissent <laughs> uh, to the Challenger report, which he thought was a political whitewash to save NASA's image. Listener writes, do you discuss his attitudes and behavior toward women in the series, including students and colleagues? Uh, there were protests of him, right? Yeah, um, yeah, we, we do discuss that. He had a, you know... A, a troublesome history, especially earlier in his life. His his daughter, Michelle Feynman, who's now, I guess, probably mid-50s, you know, she likes to make the argument that we all, you know, we're all f deeply flawed as humans and that he did a lot of things that he wasn't proud of. But it, she makes the argument that most of that was in the earlier part of his life when he was in this period of, um, you know, like I mentioned, kind of existential depression, w being widowed and so on. Not that that excuses anything. The weird part about it, however, is that he also bragged about his experiences with women in these books he wrote. And then some other advocates have argued that, well, maybe he exaggerated for the sake of sounding more worldly than he actually was. But the fact is, and we have a variety of people addressing this in the series. We have Lisa yeah. Randall, a physicist uh -huh. from Harvard, Charles Mann, that, yeah, he was an old-fashioned sexist in some ways. And in other ways, he... In other ways, he treated a variety of people, including many women, extremely well and was a great teacher. So it's a complicated personal history. We, we do try to um, acknowledge and go through all that in the series. Yes. Stephen Dubner, host of Freakonomics Radio, which we air Sunday nights at 8 o'clock here on the station. 
He will also be appearing in person this afternoon at 1 o'clock at the event called the On Air Fest at the Wythe Hotel, 80 Wythe Avenue in Williamsburg. For any listeners who got so lit up by this conversation that you want to go see more (laughs) right away, uh, 1 o'clock this afternoon, do you want to just take our last 30 seconds and plug that? What can they expect at the Wythe? Well, I I think I'm, I I don't know. I'm being interviewed about, I believe, the state of podcasting. So Freakonomics Radio, which began... In the very rooms where I'm sitting right now at WNYC 14 years ago. Yeah, um, podcasting has ebbed and flowed, and and I'm going to do it until I'm dead because, to me, it's a fantastic art form, and it lets me do things like uh, a series on Richard Feynman. So what am I going to complain Mm -hmm. about, right? Right, and one of the uh, Feynman episodes, I should say, is going to air uh, in our Sunday night, 8 o'clock. Uh, airing on the radio of your podcast. So, Stephen Dubman, always great to talk. Thank you very much. You too, Brian. Thanks a million.